Well, good morning. My name is Marianne Tupi. I'm a policy analyst here at the uh, Cato Institute. I work in the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and I also run a uh, website called Human Progress. Um, thank you very much for coming, and uh, especially thank you, uh, Neil, for you. Um, coming here, uh, uh, flying from London to talk about Hong Kong and uh, what made Hong Kong what it is. Um, but before we get there and before we uh, discuss um, the success of the, of the territory, I want to start by reading uh, something written by Martha Gellhorn, uh, the famed war correspondent who spent Christmas of 1941 in Hong Kong uh, just as the Japanese Imperial Army was closing in on the British colony. Uh, she has recently married uh, the American writer Ernst Hemingway and this was their honeymoon. Um, and this is what she wrote. Good. The streets were full of pavement sleepers at night. The brothels were small square wood cubicles lining a narrow passage, $2 a night per man per girl. The crimes were street vending without a license and a, no fine, uh, and a fine that no one could pay. These people were the real Hong Kong, and this was the most cruel poverty, worse than any I had seen before. before. Worse still was the air of eternity. Life had always been like this and always would be. The sheer numbers, the density of bodies horrified me. There was no space to breathe. These crushed millions were stifling each other. Well, I think that, as you can see, Hong Kong made a little bit of progress um, since those days. And to explain to us um, what, uh, what was behind the success of Hong Kong, I am once again uh, happy to welcome Neil Monnery. Uh, Neil studied at Exeter College, Oxford, and Harvard Business School. He joined the Boston Consulting Group in London in 1983 and was elected a vice president and director in 1993 and a senior partner and managing director in 2001. In 2004, Neil joined WH Smith PLC as group strategy director. Since 2011, he's been director of the Ashridge Strategic Management Center, a small group of practicing academics focused on writing about corporate performance. He wrote Safe as Houses, a historical analysis of property prices, which he published in 2011. And of course, uh, the book that we are here to talk about today, and that is, uh, uh, came out this year or last year? Uh, uh, this year, just, this year, just this year. Architect of Prosperity, Sir John Cooperthwaite and the Making of Hong Kong. So with that, um, Neil, let me ask you the first question, and that is, why did you decide to write about uh, John Cooper White? Well, that's a, that's a good question, because uh, he's not exactly very well known, even in his own country. Uh, and writing a book about a British civil servant who worked 50 years ago in some slightly historical uh, governmental structures uh, didn't immediately fill my publisher with joy. Uh, but I think he's an important figure. Uh, and the reason I got there was that I was struck by how many countries around the world were struggling in getting real economic growth, uh, by which uh, I mean prosperity for the people. Uh, I know there's a lot of people talking about nominal GDP growth and things like that, but really we 
are mo much more interested in real GDP per capita or median income, uh, real median income and things like that. And obviously in the UK, in the US, in, in many countries, since the crisis in 2007-8, we've struggled, I think, with that. So I started researching where had been really successful in delivering prosperity for its people, came across Hong Kong, and increasingly heard the name Cooperthwaite. And tell us a little bit about, put it in perspective, how well has Hong Kong done vis-a-vis um, -vis, um, other countries that you have researched, but also with respect to, to comparing to Great Britain? Well, that is a great comparison because uh, in the period after you've talked about in, in 1941, um, the Hong Kong returned uh, to British rule in 1945, things were pretty much stabilized by the uh, late 40s. And in 1950, Hong Kong had a real a GDP per capita uh, of about 30% of that of the UK. By 1997, that had reached 100% of the UK, and today it stands at 140% uh, of the UK. So in effectively two generations, Hong Kong has gone from relative poverty to the world-class to world class prosperity. Uh, the level at the moment is roughly equivalent to Switzerland or the US. And if you look at the resources that Hong Kong, the natural resources Hong Kong has, uh, and its uh, position and some of the turbulence it has had to deal with, that is a remarkable performance over that uh, time period. And it's not just the economics. If you take things like education, Hong Kong is usually very high, if not at the top, of uh, lists of educational performance. Uh, in 1950, the average American would live five years longer than someone from Hong Kong. Today, the average Hong Kong person, and I'm sorry, sorry to tell you, lives five years longer than the average American. So it's not just economic success, it's success in uh, non-economic measures as well. So I think that's very important because Paul Collier from Oxford University says, Economic growth is not the only thing, but it's the most important thing because it's economic growth that really buys you all the other good things in life, uh, good education, good mm -hmm. healthcare, good infrastructure, and so forth. And as you said, uh, Hong Kong really didn't have uh, any natural resources except for a, for a deep port, right? That's and, right. And so, so in the early days, explain a little bit perhaps about the importance of free trade to Hong Kong, if you, if you would. Well... Hong Kong has always been a, an, an open port, a free trading port, and that's been because um, of its history, uh, where it was the key trading port for goods coming out of China going to the West and goods going from uh, the West, particularly the UK, uh, to China. Um, that entrepreneur trade uh, has been central to building up uh, Hong Kong's wealth. Uh, and uh, for a period immediately after the Second World War, that was the key driver of incomes, uh, the return to uh, having that trade between China and the West. Interestingly, Hong Kong in uh, the 1950-1951, that, that entrepot trade pretty much disappeared because uh, America was at war with Korea, and part of that was a set of sanctions against China. So whilst there had been an immediate post-war recovery based on trade, exactly as you say, in a deep port, that sort of disappeared for a long period uh, in that period. And uh, Hong Kong had to move on to other ways of earning an income. Hong Kong has very little by way of natural uh, food production, uh, very little by way of raw materials. So almost everything has to be imported into Hong Kong and then uh, improved or sent on uh, and changed. They can't really rely on domestic demand, so. Right. So uh, by 
nature of the free market, they then they diversified into into manufacturing. We'll we'll, we'll get to that in a moment, but uh, of course, in order to make a territory of interest to both domestic and foreign investment, you have to have good policies. Yes. So this is where John Cooperthwaite, it seems to me, enters the picture. So can exactly. you talk a little bit about? Well, first, let's talk about. Um, the origins, how he came to Hong Kong, and mm -hmm. then we'll get onto the policies and why he was critical to them. But he arrived in. in he, he arrived in uh, late 1945, uh, just as the uh, Japanese uh, occupation ended. Uh, he had previously, um, and, and maybe you'll talk about this in a second because you've actually uh, met him. Um, so, so in a moment you should turn to this. But, but, but he he actually uh, studied classics, Latin and Greek. Uh, he took two degrees. He, he didn't think one was enough, so he, he did it twice. And then he did an economics uh, degree in one year, which is all he thought was necessary. Uh, and uh, by 1940, at the beginning of the Second World War, he had applied to join the Hong Kong cadets, which were an elite form of uh, administrators at that point. He uh, fortunately didn't arrive in Hong Kong, otherwise he would have been uh, interned for the period of the war. Instead, he was sent to Sierra Leone. And that was his first uh, period of being an administrator. He then came back to London to the Hong Kong Planning Unit, which was a group of people preparing uh, as to what would happen when Hong Kong uh, was liberated. That happened much faster than anyone expected. And so this team was sort of parachuted, not, not literally, but uh, was parachuted into Hong Kong to take up the administration. So here we have a, a classicist with a bit of economics uh, arriving in a, in a barren and desolate Hong Kong. From St. Andrews, let, let's... From St. Andrews. Yeah, from uh, well, he did his first degree in St. Andrews, and he did his one-year economics degree in St. Andrews. But you've met him, haven't you, in St. Andrews? Yes, yes, I have. It's, a, it's, um, it's, a, it's an interesting story. I've written about it, so if, if any of you have, have read a, uh, my review of Neil's book, uh, this will be a bit of a repetition. I'm sorry about that. But... Uh, uh, it was very interesting because I, I got very interested in in uh, in economic uh, in in political economy really, and uh, uh, I was researching like you. I uh, was fascinated mm. by uh, the great success stories of the last the, since, since the Second World War really, and Hong Kong kept on popping keeps, up. Keeps coming up. <laughs> yes, and um, and of course the, 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 there were those essays by uh, and videos by by Milton Friedman. Um, Internet was just about appearing on the horizon, so you could you could you could watch them, and so I, I started reading on on Hong Kong, and uh, I said I'm going to write more about this. And and the person I was speaking to uh, said, well, he lives right here. He lives in St Andrews, and um, uh, that came as a tremendous surprise. And in fact, we were neighbors because I was at Dean's Court, which was the postgraduate residency on South Street. Oh, and, and he, he was, was on South Street. Yeah, he was literally like 300 meters yeah. away was his, was, his, uh, was his house. So I wrote to him and, uh, um, you know, in a proper British way, I sent a letter and... Um, <laughs> Good to hear. Before emails. <laughs> and he responded uh, and invited me over for tea, again, in a very proper British way. And um, uh, that's, that's, that's how we started. Um, uh, but the interesting thing was that he was, uh, obviously, he was willing to share uh, what he has accomplished and the story of Hong Kong with me, as he would with any other student. But there was a certain reticence mm about putting it down on paper, uh, putting it into a book, 
or making a movie about it. Uh, it struck me that he was, it really was a very different generation. Yes. Um, as far as he was concerned, he retired at the age of 55, he retired to St. Andrews. Uh, he has done his duty in Hong Kong uh, to, to the best of his ability, and that was that. Um, Self-effacing, reticent to really talk about his success, and definitely, um, definitely not desirous of making a penny from publicizing what he, has, what he has accomplished. Now, did that make writing of the book more difficult? Very difficult. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had the good fortune of speaking to uh, some people who knew him, some friends and family, and they were amazed at some of the detail I had been able to find, which is largely thanks to the internet and, and as... Uh, and, and the excellent archives that are now available in Hong Kong. The, the Hong Kong archives are absolutely wonderful and staffed by wonderfully helpful people. And you can see, uh, because the papers are declassified or whatever, you can sort of see the way in which he would work within the government. And as, I think the reason he never wanted to uh, push himself to the front of the picture or write a biography was, was perhaps twofold. One was exactly as you say, his character, his shyness, him not wanting to be part of the, or, or the main part of the story. And also because he believed the people of Hong Kong had created their success. He had enabled it or facilitated it in some way, but he never saw himself as the primary agent of the success. Uh, it, it, it was done by entrepreneurs. It was done by people working in factories. Uh, it wasn't done by, by politicians. And, and therefore, he, he was always very clear to say his job was to enable. I think he enabled in a remarkably effective way, uh, obviously, uh, in, in, uh, in talking about him in the way that I do. But, um, so, but so that's actually a very beautiful segue into the question of yes. what he has what he has done. So he arrives in 45 and then makes his way through through the bureaucracy. Well, he has he has a very interesting job uh, initially in, in the immediate post-war period, which is to run the Department of Supplies, Trade and Industry. Uh, first of all, second in, in charge and then in charge. And actually, this was a department that was heavily involved in intervening in markets. Uh, he would go around, or the staff would go around, finding supplies of rice or finding firewood or coal uh, from different places in Asia, doing deals with, on an intergovernmental basis with Japan, uh, Australia and the like, because Hong Kong was in a very difficult position. It needed to find rice and it needed to find firewood and fuel. And these were really only available um, in, 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 uh, in an intergovernmental way. Um, he also he ran the price control. Uh, things like uh, biscuits were, you know, there was a, how much you could uh, price your biscuits at and your cup of tea uh, and the like. So there was a great deal of intervention. But I think he realized quite quickly that actually his job was to remove that and allow the people, uh, the companies of Hong Kong, to fill that uh, gap. Uh, I, I remember one particularly uh, amusing trail in the, in the paperwork um, which was that at that time glass, the export of glass was banned because glass was a, a scarce product. So the entrepreneurial traders in Hong Kong had come to the idea uh, of actually uh, instead uh, exporting glass bottles, which would then be recycled uh, abroad to make glass. Uh, so Cooperthwaite banned the export of glass bottles. 
The following week, or following month, he, he's having to write in his report, uh, the traders have now started exporting broken bottles because that wasn't covered by <laughs> the uh, remit. So he now says, uh, broken bottles are now banned from export. So the, next, the, the following month, it's traders have put colored water into bottles and labeled them dye and are exporting these to be broken up uh, elsewhere, which he, he, he very wryly writes, uh, the, the, the export of bottles, of beer bottles filled with other than beer is hereby prohibited. <laughs> uh, so he's, he's playing these, uh, uh, if you like, these battles, but he's actually not annoyed about it. He's delighted that the entrepreneurial spirit uh, is there, and he's very happy when in 1947 uh, glass becomes uh, a product that it's free to import and export uh, throughout. So he has this quite interesting period, which I think was formative for his thinking of actually having to run a commercial trading organization within government, which is actually, in his mind, extremely difficult to do and has a lot of problems in, in doing it. Accounting problems, management problems, how much to pay your staff problems, incentives issues, many, many issues. So he's doing it because otherwise there wouldn't be rice and there wouldn't be fuel. But he's very aware of the need to pull back. And it reinforces, I think, for him, uh, all that he had learned in St. Andrew's studying economics. And in particular, at that time, studying the classical economists, in particular, Adam Smith. He, he kept a copy of Wealth of Nations with him for his life. Uh, it was a book he referred to uh, frequently. And you can see it in, in what he's doing. But I think without that practical experience of having to be a, uh, an administrator actually operating in markets, I don't think he would have felt some of the things he felt, felt later on as strongly as he actually did. Right, so he sees how regulation, yes. um, how people respond to regulation and try to get around regulation because human nature is to, is to, is to profit even, even in yes. spite of the laws that are put in, in, in your way. Yeah. And he learns that from Smith. Smith has a, an extraordinarily um, heavy influence on him mm. um, at, um, when it comes to economics. So then he becomes deputy financial secretary in, in 1951. And do we already see him pushing uh, pro-market policies alongside the financial secretary, or is this thing sort of in the background? No, he's he's uh, he's pushing, um, but obviously as a number two, uh, not 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 as uh, not as the prime. Uh, uh, at that point, Clark, who's the financial secretary, uh, is is uh, has quite similar set of beliefs. Uh, also, because of necessity, there was very little opportunity to. Um, spend more money than Hong Kong had. There weren't many people to borrow it from. Britain was not in a wealthy state and couldn't easily give the money. So uh, many of the policies that we see Cooperthwaite uh, pursuing from principle, other people are pursuing also from pragmatism. Okay, so, so Clark, Clark's views are basically uh, perhaps not deeply, as deeply felt. He, he, was, he was responding to the fact that he didn't have any money. Yes, he, he, I, I, he's, he's a pragmatist and, a, and I think a very able he, person uh, in, uh, in, in his custodianship of the economy. But uh, he is not as um, certain of the sort of, if you like, the underpinnings of his economic philosophy as Cooperthwaite, I think, is. And Cooperthwaite is providing a little bit more of that amongst the administration. So, for example, in uh, the late 1950s, Cooperthwaite is asked to chair a committee looking at whether or not 
Hong Kong should have an industrial development bank. At that point, it was very trendy to have industrial development banks to help uh, in the you know, development of, of economies. So Cooperthwaite is made chairman of this whilst he's still deputy financial secretary. Uh, and he, he goes around, everyone's very keen on it. The industrialists are very keen on it. Many of the civil servants are very keen on it. So he, he, he ends up asking the question, he said, I'd like you to bring me the, number, the projects, not, 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 not in an abstract way, the actual projects that have not occurred in Hong Kong due to a lack of commercial finance. When we see those, we'll know that we need to fill the gap. And at which point there aren't any available <laughs> uh, and, and the whole thing sort of falls, falls away. So you can see him, even as deputy, pushing an agenda which is a little bit closer to the one that he pursued uh, later when he was financial secretary uh, under, under Clark. So then we get to 1960, which I think is a very crucial year, yeah. uh, when Clark, um, in your book, um, has a sort of a crisis of, of um, shall we say, crisis of principle or crisis of ideology. And he actually addresses the Hong Kong um, Assembly, is, uh, the Legislative, the, Council. The Legislative Council. And uh, he says, well, we now have two possible... Yes, we are at a crossroads, he says. Right. But you, you, you know... Well, uh, so... so to me, that's very interesting. So, so uh, Clark realizes that Hong Kong is now wealthy enough to start spending money on non-essentials. Mm. And he poses a question, should Hong Kong still remain a small government territory, or should it opt for a more European-style interventionism? Yes. And that, I think, to, to, to that I think is a very crucial moment because he doesn't carry it out. No, so it's, it's his last year of being financial secretary and um, he sort of drops this question in uh, to, the, to, to, the, uh, to the Legislative Council, uh, leaving it quite deliberately for his successor to answer. So, so he's, he knows that he won't have time to implement whatever the answer to this is, but he, he wishes to put the question there. It's in part driven by um, the difficulty that Hong Kong was having with protectionism in the US, the UK, and the EC. Uh, despite being nominally very encouraging about free trade, uh, all of those uh, units become a little less uh, keen on it when it's hitting, hitting some of the industries. And Hong Kong had built an extremely successful textile business in particular. Right. And the, the US and the UK and the EC were all trying to limit the ability for the Hong Kong textile industry to export into those markets for the obvious reason that it was affecting jobs in, in those domestic markets. And uh, all of those governments were coming up with some quite peculiar reasons <clears throat> as to why Hong Kong must be cheating in some way. Uh, you know, they, they, they're not, they, the most ridiculous one was saying, well, they're obviously selling to us at a loss, uh, which is a little bit unclear why private enterprises would be doing that. Uh, but so he's faced with that, and, and, and Clark, I think, is wondering uh, from that as to whether or not they need to manage the industrial base of Hong Kong more directly in an industrial planning sense, which, if you remember, was very popular at that time, and places like Japan were pursuing uh, that to a greater extent. Uh, and he's been under a lot of pressure from the British civil service and the British politicians to move closer to a European model. So, uh, and, and he's beginning to wonder whether that might be the right thing to do. And many people uh, on many of the unofficials on the Legislative Council agree that it probably would be 
the right thing to move more towards that, a more planned economy, a more, uh, more with an industrial policy, greater control from government over uh, the allocation of resources, uh, uh, and so on. Uh, and Cooperthwaite is left with that question hanging in right. his first year of office. And, and I think that before we get onto the, the meat of the discussion, which is the, the actual policies that Cooperthwaite pursued, I think it's very important um, to understand that this is really a pivotal moment in the history of Hong Kong. If at this point the administration, uh, Clark and Cooperthwaite, cave in, and embrace the Keynesian consensus, Yes, Hong Kong would have been a very different place. Uh, and, I believe and, so. And so, so I think it says something about the man that his, the strength of his beliefs, and we get, we'll get onto them in a second, the strength of his beliefs is such that he ex actually stands contra mundum. He stands against the world and says, no, here we are doing it differently regardless of what everybody else is doing. Now, take, that takes a lot of courage. Yes, I think he, he spent a good part of that year marshalling the administration to a consensus as to what to do and uh, got them to the place where they followed the, the laissez-faire type policies that had been in place before and which Cooperthwaite is, is uh, the key champion of in the subsequent decade. So let's talk about those yes. policies a little bit. Um, what, uh, um, what would you say were the top five or six or however many you want um, policies that Hong Kong pursued at the time, which other people perhaps weren't, and that made it into success? Well, I think, I think the absolute cornerstone is his belief that private companies are best placed to allocate resources, and in particular to allocate investment decisions. Um, and he believes that if they do that, then they will tend to put their money into things that are more profitable on average than if the government was in charge of that allocation decision. And it's why he's against industrial planning and, uh, and the like. Uh, because he believes that, he, he therefore, and he also believes in, in, in markets, it's very important, I think, to note that what Cooperthwaite is arguing for is optimal allocation of capital within free markets. If there are monopolies or public goods, he's very happy to regulate those. Uh, the water supply, for example, he, he is very involved in deciding what price should be charged for water uh, or the price for some of the uh, telecoms uh, uh, opportunities and so on. But where there's a market, be it a domestic market or an international market, which is, of course, very much helped by being a proponent of free trade, he believes capital allocation within that context will be optimal for the growth of the economy in the long term. Because he believes that, um, that, 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 that the business people will do that, uh, he's very happy to leave resources with them and to have a low tax environment. Because he believes they will invest in things that will give a higher return and through that economic growth actually increase government spending uh, in the long term. And alongside that, he also believes uh, perhaps the fourth key, key lever is, is his belief in fiscal uh, conservatism, which he believes in for a number, and, and I think it's important to just reflect that in Hong Kong for almost every year, not quite every year, the government has run a surplus in the last 70 years, and they have a vast uh, reserve. At the time of Cooperthwaite, they were, their target was to have a year's spending in reserve, which I think puts in 
puts in stark contrast with our discussion in the West around what level of deficit is all right and what level of national uh, debt would be sufficient is it, or, or would be too much. Is it 100% of GDP or 200% of GDP? It was quite a different discussion in Hong Kong. So I think those were the key planks. And obviously the fiscal conservatism meant that if he wanted uh, taxes to be low and he wanted a bit of a buffer, then government expenditure had to be low. Uh, just by simple maths. Um, so uh, he, he was very keen on encouraging that mix. The reason he wanted that mix as policy was because he believed it would lead to the highest possible economic growth, thereby giving jobs to the large number of immigrants that were coming into Hong Kong at that time and meeting the aspirations of the Hong Kong people. So he, it was because he believed the Western system of industrial planning and the like wouldn't work that he preferred that mix of policy. Yeah, I, th I think it's very important to remember that actually in Hong Kong, the government every year spent more money in, in uh, nominal, uh, nominal terms than, than the year before. Yes. Uh, but that was generated through economic growth because the economy grew so fast, they were able to spend more and more money increasingly on things like infrastructure and so forth. Yeah, I have, I have somewhere in here, let me just find it, a, a, a very interesting piece of data, which is that um, in, in 1950 or so, the government spent uh, only about uh, 1,300 Hong Kong dollars per person in government expenditure in today's money. Mm -hmm. uh, by 1997, it was $30,000 spent by the government per person, and by today, it's $60,000. So, in fact, the amount of support that any individual has got in society in Hong Kong has massively increased over the period. Cooperthwaite was very keen to see the fruit of uh, this, his economic policy as coming through both to further economic growth within the private sector, but also to enhancing public uh, goods and public services as well. In particular, very focused in on the most needy uh, people. Um, I think since we are sitting in the Hayek Auditorium, um, uh, I want to read something that he said. I think this is from Hansard. Uh, a, a budget debate uh, in the 60s, uh, there was a call within the legislative uh, chamber to basically opt for economic planning. And um, he writes, or rather he says, you're right, official opposition to overall economic planning and planning controls has been characterized in the recent editorial as Papa knows best. Mm -hmm. But it's precisely because Papa does not know best that I believe that government should not presume to tell any businessman or industrialist what he should or should not do, far less what he may or may not do, and no matter how, and no matter how it may be dressed up um, in what is called planning. Um, do you know if, um, if, if Cooper White ever read um, Hayek's uh, essay on... Uh, uh, the, uh, what is it, the question of knowledge in society? Mm, dispersed versus centralised. Yeah. That, that's right. Do we know if he was I, influenced I, by that? I have not been able to find that out. But his, his logic is obviously that dispersed decision-making uh, in a free market um, is, a, is a way uh, for optimal allocation of investment and resources. So he's very much attuned to that. He, I think, is drawing most heavily on Adam Smith. I, if I can trade you a quote, he, 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 he sort of echoes, if you like, Adam Smith, where he says, over a wide field of our economy, it is still better to rely on the 19th century's hidden hand 
than to thrust clumsy bureaucratic fingers into its sensitive mechanism. In particular, we cannot afford to damage its mainspring, freedom of competitive enterprise. So I think he's very much aligned with those ideas that if you distribute uh, key decision-making on that, it will lead to a better path than, say, the approach of industrial planning and industry selection, which was occurring uh, elsewhere in the world. Uh, it's, I think it's interesting to note that the two have actually met because uh, Cooperthwaite was instrumental in planning the Mont Pelerin Society yes, meeting that's in, right. in 1974, that, That's when it was in Hong Kong. That's uh, correct. Also when it was in St. Andrews. Uh, oh, okay. In 76, I think it was. And, and I know that uh, Cooperthwaite spoke there. Uh, yes. Sorry. Um, Hayek spoke there because uh, one of our friends, uh, Warren Coates, here actually goes on the same he, he would. He was a great reader, so he would then, I'm sure, have read. Yeah, he, he uh, wrote so good. Um, so, what about uh, where Cooper White falls short in the libertarian fantasy world where uh, there is very, very limited government? Where, yes. where, where did he, um, when I say short, I'm being ironic, but uh, uh, where was he, where did he see role for the government in, in running of a modern economy? Well, he, he, he was, uh, I think it's fair to say, and, and you may know more, uh, or maybe able to add from having met him, he, he seems to me to be a pragmatist. He, he's not a doctrinaire uh, person. He's not uh, pushing free markets because he believes, full stop, they're the right answer. He's doing it because he believes it will be the most effective way to create prosperity and wealth for the people uh, of Hong Kong. <coughs> Um, and therefore, he comes to many decisions about where to allow libertarian ideas or free market ideas to occur from that pragmatic mindset. Does it work or does it not work? Uh, and you can see that he is very concerned, uh, for example, where market failure occurs. So if he thinks that there's a reason, for example, monopolies. So he, he is also of the Adam Smith view that companies and private enterprise act in their own interests. And therefore, if they are not, in a sense, regulated by markets, they should be regulated by government. So he is very involved in setting, as I said, pricing decisions uh, for things like um, utilities and the like, or for great public goods. Uh, he, you know, the airports, uh, water systems. Uh, he, he thinks that the government needs to play a role there. He's also extremely concerned, and he talks about this many times, about helping the most needy in society. He's, he's very, he's very uh, aware that you, 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 know, you could see the government as being totally absent from key social areas like education, uh, health, and the like, uh, and in particular in Hong Kong, perhaps housing. And whilst- Talk about that a little, because yeah. uh, a lot of people know that Hong Kong had this housing policy. Mm. But that was partly caused, wasn't it, by the, by the, by the, scas uh, by, by the uh, but terrible problems in China, where uh, you know you had a cultural revolution and so forth, and then you had millions of people coming across the border into Hong Kong. And yes, there were, I mean the problem was caused by a very large influx of uh, of, uh, of people, and an observation that the construction sector was not providing uh, appropriate accommodation uh, for those people as they as they came in and uh, exacerbated by some accidents, fires, and so on in shanty towns. So the combination of those things meant the government felt a very strong need to act. Um, Cooperthwaite, as you can imagine, was very cautious about allowing the government to spend large sums of money on, on uh, things like this. 
Um, and his requirement was that uh, it should earn a, a return, maybe not a very high return, but a return nonetheless, that they, the houses should be built or the flats should be built so that they could be afforded by people on the lowest incomes and still provide a slight return to the government. And is that the case still today? I believe so, but it will be interesting uh, <laughs> if, uh, if anyone right. uh, can, can uh, confirm that later. So, so even when, uh, I think this, this is the key, is that even when he's providing for the least well-off, he's still thinking about the fiscus and the long-term health of the... Of the he is. Uh, there's, the a, there's a great quote uh, when uh, education comes under review in the mid-60s. He, he says... Education, I have to say education is a good thing, but, full stop, but even a good thing must be paid for. <laughs> uh, and so he's very concerned about how things are paid for and the, the um, expenditure on one thing doesn't squeeze out the government expenditure on something else. And in particular, he's concerned about spending on middle-class subsidies, um, squeezing out, providing things for the most needy in society. So he's very cautious of that uh, and very keen also to keep expenditure low for the other reasons that we've talked about, which is he sees economic growth as the key way that he, his policies and himself can help the most needy in Hong Kong. Well, we are coming to the end of yeah. our discussion, so perhaps last thoughts on uh, Cooper's White, the man. Mm. Well, I, I mean, in reading about... Well, perhaps I should, I'll tell you a story. Yeah, so you, when, you I, when, I, when I was talking to him, I, I asked him, uh, uh, we were talking about this and... and, and uh, or, or rather, the, the way that his character came through. So apparently there was a proposal uh, from the Hong Kong governor to give him a, a few thousand dollars to refurbish... Uh, air the, conditioning. Uh, yeah, to, to add air conditioning yeah, and air to refurbish his house. Yeah. his house. And he refused, saying that if this money is not available uh, for the general public in Hong Kong, or, or this kind of subsidy is not available for the, for the general uh, public of Hong Kong, he would not partake in it. They don't make them like that, politicians, and, and do they? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. There's another coup. Well, there probably is another coup thread out there somewhere. But um, uh, I, it's an unusual background. I mean, here's someone who uh, was uh, lightly, I think, absent the Second World War, to have become a professor of Greek or professor of Latin uh, at, a, at a UK university, and instead. He ends up as economic minister uh, halfway around the world uh, in, in, um, uh, this, in, in this uh, place at a very difficult time. So uh, it shows, I think, something about his uh, versatility of thinking and also his commitment of thinking. Uh, one, of, one of the commentators about him said, of course, he wouldn't have lasted five minutes in the British civil service uh, in the Treasury, which is probably right. He wouldn't have lasted very long because he was not a very good uh, compromiser, as far as I can tell. Uh, he, he had quite strong opinions and was quite stubborn about them. The people who worked closest with him uh, were ex uh, you know, extremely complimentary about his inclusiveness of... Uh, thinking his desire to engage uh, in the local population and not to be part of some uh, expat bubble. Uh, and uh, he would often, for example, wander around Hong Kong. He was very annoyed when television started uh, showing the budget speech because up till then he had wandered around Hong Kong to get true ground-level information about what was happening in Hong Kong. He says, the problem is now people know who I am, so I, I can't ask them questions or they tell me a different answer than they told me the week uh, before, so he's a very self-effacing man, as you say. He he did his piece, um, highly principled, and then he wandered off to play golf and uh, and do other things. Well, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
Our next speaker is uh, Paul Chan, um, who is the financial secretary of uh, Hong Kong. He's a certified public accountant. He is uh, a former president of the Hong Kong Institute of Certified Public Accountants and a former chairman of the Association of Chartered Certified Accountants in Hong Kong. Before joining uh, the territorial uh, government, Mr. Chan held a number of public service positions, including member of the Legislative Council, um, chairman of the Legal Aid Services Council, board member of the West uh, Kowloon um, Cultural uh, District Authority, non-official member of the Strategic Development Commission and uh, council member of the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Um, Mr. Chen has served uh, as Secretary for Development of the Hong Kong uh, Special Administrative Region Government from uh, 2012 to 2017, and he was appointed to his current position as Financial Secretary on January 16, 2017. With that, uh, welcome. Mr. Monnery, uh, Mr. Tupi, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. I'm very pleased to join you today to have this welcome opportunity to speak at the prestigious Cato Institute and to help celebrate the launching of New Monnery's latest book, Architect of Prosperity, Sir John Cooperways and the Making of Hong Kong. My thanks to the Cato Institute and Marion for organizing this meaningful event. It is always a pleasure to talk about Hong Kong, especially with our good US friends. Indeed, Hong Kong's post-war rise from destitution to its universally recognized status as the world's fierce economy is a fascinating story to tell. In a nutshell, the building blocks for Hong Kong's enduring economic success include an open and free market, an efficient and clean public sector, a robust institutional framework, freedom of speech and travel, free movement of goods, capital, and people, a simple and low tax regime, a deep pool of multicultural talent, and a fine tradition of rule of law underpinned by independent judiciary. When Sir John became financial secretary in 1961, Hong Kong was already a free trading port with no controls over the movement of goods, capital, and people. He noted that the economy was recovering quickly without significant government intervention. That confirmed his belief that the market was the most efficient way of allocating resources. Sir John, during his decade-long steerage of Hong Kong's economy, adopted a positive non-intervention policy, ensuring minimal government interference in the, in the economic affairs of individuals and society. 
With free market as his prime principle, he worked to maintain a prudent physical policy and a simple tax regime, buttressed by low tax rates, providing the conditions that would enable individuals and businesses to thrive. He did a fine job of that, according to Mr. Monnery and others over the years, including, of course, celebrated US economist, Milton Friedman. In his book, Mr. Monnery offers a somewhat larger explanation for Hong Kong's post-war miracle for delivering, and I quote, one of the most dramatic improvements in the living standards in the history of the world. The author writes, and again I quote, there can be little doubt that the combination of Cooperway's economic policy framework and the entrepreneurship of the population combined to deliver this. Between the early 1960s and the mid-1990s, the Hong Kong economy soared, increasing 12-fold in real terms, with per capita GDP reaching a level qualifying Hong Kong as a high-income economy. Hong Kong's economic progress did not stop there, I'm pleased to report. This year marks the 20th anniversary of Hong Kong's reunification with our motherland as a special administrative region. Hong Kong has made considerable progress in the past 20 years. Under the unique arrangement of one country, two systems, which enables the indispensable building blocks of Hong Kong's continuous success and prosperity to continue. In 2016, the Hong Kong economy nearly doubled that of 1997. Real GDP growth during this period averaged 3.2% a year, exceeding the exceeding that of the advanced economies, which averaged about 2% a year. Our per capita nominal GDP this year reached about US $46,000, surpassing many of the world's advanced economies, including Germany, the UK, or Japan. Today, Hong Kong is among the world's leading financial centers and has been the world's largest IPO centers five times out of the past 10 years. In addition, more than 8,000 overseas and mainland companies have established offices in Hong Kong. We are Asia's second largest recipient of foreign direct investment. This and a great many of other achievements can be attributed to our unwavering commitment to free enterprise, to maintaining a free and open economic environment, 
to the fearful of capital, goods, information, and talents, and to ensuring a level playing field for all businesses. Add to all that the rule of law and our belief in the value of small government, you will have an appreciation as to why last month the FASER Institute, with the involvement of our host, the Cato Institute, once again named Hong Kong the world's fierce economy. Hong Kong has earned that honor, by the way, every year since the first Economic Freedom of the World report was published back in 1996. They are hardly alone, to be sure. This year, Hong Kong was named the world's most competitive economy by the International Institute of Management Development in Switzerland, and for the second year in a row. And year after year, the World Bank ranks Hong Kong among the five easiest places in the world to do business. While Hong Kong's economy has fared well over the past decades, we cannot afford to be complacent and need to respond to changes in external environment and in our own demographics. Over the years, globalization and technological advancements have intensified competition between economies. Hong Kong has to stand up to keen overseas competition. At the same time, we have to tackle the challenges brought by our own fast-aging population. Going forward, the government will play a more facilitative role in furthering Hong Kong's economic development. Our annual policy address, the first of the new term government, took place just two days ago. The chief executive, Mrs. Carrie Lam, sets out our plans to tackle Hong Kong's supply-side constraints, to nurture the development of innovation and technology, as well as the creative industry, and to further strengthen our pillar industries to drive our economy forward. She also announced our plans to implement a tax cut, mainly for smaller businesses, and are now additional deduction for research and development expenditures across the board. On top of an already low tax system, it will offer even more reason for US companies to look to Hong Kong when planning their expansion into the flourishing market of Asia. The policy address also outlines how Hong Kong will benefit from the close economic ties with the mainland of China, in particular under the Belt and Road Initiative and the Guangdong, Hong Kong, Macau, Bay Area. But while we believe in the transformative role government can play in enabling sustainable and inclusive growth, we will, please be rest assured, remain true to our free market roots. 
we will keep our market open and competitive. And we welcome U.S. companies, investments, and talent to join us in building and sharing Hong Kong's economic prosperity throughout the 21st century of Thomas. Finally, my congratulations again to Neil Bonnery for your remarkable new book, and my gratitude to Cato Institute for its warm welcome and its long-standing confidence in Hong Kong and its outstanding contribution to the economic freedom of the World Report. I welcome you all to come to Hong Kong to see for yourself the fruits of our strong commitment to upholding economic freedom over the years. Thank you for having me this morning. Thank you. I want to um, point to the Economic Freedom of the World report uh, that the Financial Secretary has uh, spoken about. It is an annual publication of the Fraser Institute in Canada and uh, we co-publish it here in uh, uh, the United States. And uh, it is really a wonderful guide to, um, uh, to countries, to something like 151 or 152 countries around the world which are ranked in accordance with their economic freedom, which includes things like the size of government, freedom to trade, sound monetary policy, regulation, and of course, free trade. So with that, let me open it up to a question and answer session. Um, if you would please uh, wait until the mic gets to you, um, then uh, if you would please uh, speak into the mic and uh, form your question as a question, really. Uh, <laughs> that will make things much easier for all of us. And if you could tell us, please, who you are and uh, who pays your way through life. Um, <laughs> so, Gabriel Roth in the front, front row. Um, I'm Gabriel Roth, a transport economist, and I visited Hong Kong whenever I had the opportunity to do so uh, in the course of my travels for the World Bank. My question is, might it be said that the prosperity of Hong Kong was not confined to Hong Kong, but also influenced economic growth in mainland China. Okay. Yeah, I don't need a mic, it's already on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Gabriel, thank you for the quick question. Yes, the economic prosperity of Hong Kong is not just Hong Kong alone. Uh, if we look, at, look back at history, China start opening up to the outside world and start their economic reform from the year 1978, now almost 40 years. Hong Kong has played a pivotal role in the process, particularly in the first 20, 30 years. Because when China just opened up, the major foreign investments are from Hong Kong. Hong Kong, Hong Kong entrepreneurs moved their manufacturing operations to the Pearl River Delta, for example. And that led the first uh, light industry development uh, in the mainland. And export being a very important driver of economic growth for the earlier part of China. 
And the second example, if I may share with you, is the financial services sector. I mentioned earlier on that uh, we are the world's number one IPO, initial public offering uh, center. Uh, and five out of the last 10 years, we rank number one. The first mainland companies coming to Hong Kong to raise funds was Qingdao Beer. At that time, raised just a couple million Hong Kong dollars. But now, mainland companies accounting for about half of the companies listed on our stock exchange in terms of number. In terms of market capitalization, it's 60%. In terms of daily turnover, it's over 70%. So uh, in the process, Hong Kong facilitate mainland companies' needs in terms of raising funds. But the meaning is beyond dollars. Because by listing on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, they need to follow international standards and practices in terms of accounting, in terms of governance, and in terms of the package that they can offer to recruit executives. That is a very important push in terms of, uh, in terms of China modernizing their, even their state-owned companies. And the third example I may share is China's internationalization of renminbi. Um, Hong Kong is the test bed for that. And at the moment, the amount of renminbi offshore in Hong Kong is over 600 billion. And we handle over 70% of offshore renminbi trade settlements. The fourth example I can share with you is the uh, connection between the Shanghai Stock Exchange and the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, the Shenzhen Stock Exchange and the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, and lately, the Bond Connect, and as well as the mutual recognition of mutual funds arrangement between Hong Kong and the mainland, whereby allowing international investors through Hong Kong to go into their market and allowing their money for this channel, investing into the international market. So the way we see it, the economic prosperity of Hong Kong is important for us as Hong Kong people. But in the process, we do contribute to the economic development of China. And not just economic development, but through the process, uh, Governance standards, technical standards, also got shared with them and influenced the process of their opening up and the process of their benchmarking international practices. Yeah, good morning. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Adrian Day. I manage money, so clients pay my way. Um, two very quick questions, if I may. The first question is, during this period, you know, let's say 40, 50 years after uh, the Second World War, was there much uh, oversight or pushback from London to some of these policies? And then the second question, if I may, for a sort of 
educated 20, 30-year-old um, Hong Kong person, do they know the name uh, Cooper Thwaite? Do they understand what the foundation of the free enterprise economy in Hong Kong is? Please. Um, if I take the first question, uh, to start with, about pushback from London. Uh, I, I think there was very considerable pushback uh, throughout this period uh, from London. Um, if one takes, for example, the uh, introduction of the income tax rates and so on, they had just been introduced prior to the Second World War, really as a way of funding um, some of the military spending. Um, London was extremely keen that these rates should be reasonably high, kept pushing for them to be at least 25%. Um, the end result, uh, I think, was 10% in the first instance, then it went to 125 and eventually to 15 uh, But for a long time, there was a lot of pressure in London to try and uh, make it, as they called it, more normal, uh, uh, higher and, and for applying to more people. I understand that only about half of Hong Kong people pay income tax even today, uh, and that was a good example of, of the... A different agenda that was pursued by uh, London. I think it's fair to say the Hong Kong, um, Hong Kong administration, including uh, the British expatriates, if you like, were extremely uh, focused on what was right for Hong Kong. <laughs> uh, they, they were very bad at taking uh, any orders from London and considered themselves completely uh, to be wor yeah, working in the interests of the people of Hong Kong. So you would find, for example, Dennis Healy, who was Defence Secretary, one point, uh, writing about uh, when he was trying to get Hong Kong to provide some contribution towards the um, military station in Hong Kong, he said, "I always, re I always return from my encounters with Sir John Cooperthwaite completely bruised." <laughs> so no, they weren't, they weren't very good at, uh, at following the London line, and they had significant independence. The first financial secretary after the war, uh, Geoffrey Fellows, was extremely clear that his key objective, apart from the recovery of Hong Kong, was to be independent of London, financially and economically. As to your second question about the uh, young people in Hong Kong's concept about free enterprise, um, well, since change over in terms of uh, protection of uh, Hong Kong people's right, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of travel, uh, these are all well noted and this we hold it dearly. In terms of how our economy works, it's basically open economy, free competition, level playing field. And this is quite deep-rooted, uh, not just among the bureaucrats, but also among the academics and the business sector. Um, because being a very small economy, we can't afford to hold a different view and adopt a different set of policy. Because apart from our human capital, we don't have much to offer. So we have to rely on multilateral trading. Yeah. That is very fundamental. That is something that we hold dearly on to. But of course, there are changing aspirations in the younger generation in terms of the fruit of economic growth should be better shared. This kind of uh, 
this kind of appeals uh, will come up uh, from time to time. Um, when compare Hong Kong nowadays to the 60s, yeah, we do a little more in terms of safety net protection, uh, taking care of the elderly. But overall, we are still a very small government. Uh, we have a population of 7.3 million. At the moment, the size of the civil service is about 180,000. Government expenditure has always been kept at no more than 22% of GDP, although that is not a statutory ceiling, but more or less like that. Uh, we are very conscious about keeping uh, our expenditure within our ability to spend. Let's go to the gentleman in front. We'll get to you in a sec. My name is Jack Crawford, and I work for a company headquartered in Shenzhen, whose name I can't really pronounce, but they go by the initials ZTE. So it's a telecommunications company. But um, I'm interested in knowing how you manage the money supply in Hong Kong, since I know it's it's uh, it's in, I, it, three banks provide the money, which is, is a, as I, I would guess, unique. I don't know of any country where the government doesn't issue the money, but lets the banks do it. That's just amazing to me. Are you unique, and how do you manage the money supply? Well, you are referring to printing of monies, the notes. Uh, it, it is a legacy. Uh, when we were British colony, money printing authority delegated to the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, Standard Charter Bank, and Mercantile Bank. Uh, after, uh, before the changeover, uh, the printing authority also delegated to the Bank of China. Uh, basically, the Hong Kong dollar is packed to the US dollar. Uh, it is one US dollar to 7.8 Hong Kong dollar. There is a very small uh, range of uh, small range, uh, 7.75 to 7.85%. I, I mean dollar, not percent. Within this range, carefully monitored by the Hong Kong Monetary Authority. When these banks print money, they have to give Hong Kong Monetary Authority the equivalent amount of US dollar. That is, That's I think, that I think is the critical point. There's no central bank, yeah. but all of the note issue is backed by uh, deposits. So it's yeah. extremely strong uh, system. Yeah. And uh, there's a very interesting Scottish connection there, in a sense that if you go to Scotland, yes. uh, money in circulation are the Royal Bank of Scotland, the Bank, bank of Scotland, yeah. Clydesdale, I think. Uh, yeah, three um, or four and, and that goes back to the free Scottish banking period um, much, much early on. But... Uh, it, 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 there is a peg. Yeah. Okay. Excuse me, one, um, last, one last statement on that. The prudential management of the banking system, making sure the bank is working within the parameters, the financial system is stable and safe, that responsibility rests with the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, which is also under the care of the financial secretary. To, to, yeah, that to is you, how yeah. it is organized. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the lady in front. 
Thank you. Hello. Uh, the gentleman before me mentioned a special economic zone of Shenzhen, and my name is Sharon Freeman. I lived in Hong Kong for 12 years. I used to work with the U.S. Uh, consulate there and then with one of the largest uh, uh, U.S.-owned uh, companies that traded apparel uh, starting in the 1950s. Uh, I love Hong Kong, and uh, my question is, what impact do you think Hong Kong had on the model of special economic zones in China? And also, what impact has their proliferation had now on the prospects for, for Hong Kong? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you are welcome back to Hong Kong anytime. <laughs> uh, well, the relationship between Hong Kong and mainland, particularly the special administrative region, is very interactive. On some areas, we do compete with each other. And in other areas, we think we need to work together to try to have a, a synergy. Uh, perhaps you have already uh, learned about a plan by the central government. That plan is, that development plan is called the Guangdong, Hong Kong, Macau Bay Area. Uh, include 11 cities in that region. Uh, that 11 cities include Hong Kong, Macau, and some of the fast-growing uh, cities in the Guangdong province, notably Shenzhen, Zhuhai, and Guangzhou. Uh, this Bay Area has a total population of over 66 million people, an aggregate GDP of about 1.3 trillion US, which is comparable to the size of Australia or South Korea. So the way we see it is that going forward, uh, we have our advantage as a free port, uh, the fierce economy. Uh, the International Financial Center in Asia. We want to reinforce that position and take a leading role in that. Uh, that also including trading and logistics. But on the other hand, in terms of uh, innovation and technology, ICT, uh, Shenzhen is doing quite well. But in terms of research, in terms of the capabilities of the universities, in terms of protection of intellectual property rights, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of information, we are a lot better. And, for, and on those counts, we have the confidence of international organizations and universities. So for those leading uh, laboratories, uh, universities, if they want to set up some operation in Asia, the natural, the natural choice would be Hong Kong. So what we are aiming at is to, to play a role of more than a bridge, but we also take part uh, uh, to bring this together so that uh, this could be a driver for future economic growth, benefiting not just Hong Kong, but also those uh, working with us, and also benefiting the neighboring uh, city. Yeah, thank Neil, you. Do you want to? No. 
Okay. Um, yes, sir. Uh, thank you. Thank you both very much. Interesting presentations. Uh, my name is Michael Chekin. I'm um, owner of a uh, company, Asset Strategies International, uh, that deals in uh, physical gold bullion. And uh, the question I have is about the future. Uh, I've been to Shanghai a number of times, and when I go every two years, it seems like uh, uh, it's the city of cranes. You know, there's, uh, there's always something going up and going on in Shanghai. I've heard talk that uh, some of the activities, the particularly a financial center activities from Hong Kong, are being moved by the uh, mainland Chinese to Shanghai. Could you please comment on that? Hong Kong and Shanghai are always in the discussion how these two cities compete with each other. And even there are suggestions that, uh, well, your international financial center status in Hong Kong may not be able to cap say 10 years later because Shanghai is coming up. But I don't believe in that, yeah. with reasons, of course. Um, Shanghai is growing very fast, uh, but we have some very unique competitive advantage and uh, systematic advantage that, to, that are very difficult for them to overcome. Um, our legal system, common law legal system, the respect and the fine tradition of rule of law, underpinned by independent judiciary. This is very important, particularly for financial centers. And also, Hong Kong is, for history reasons, very internationalized. It is not just the English language alone, but the ability to, to read between the lines and the network of contacts and confidence that we have built over the past decades with the international community and the trust that has been established is also very fundamental and important uh, to our status of international financial center. So the way we see it is that on those, it is very difficult for them to, to, uh, to catch up. Even by browsing internet, the ability to browse freely on the internet is also very different. That is one thing. But there are areas that we can work with them on a complementary basis. We are not mutually exclusive kind of competition. But I think the real challenge for us in Hong Kong is how to build on our existing advantages to grow further. And because the world is changing very fast, the competition is just, it's not just from the mainland, it is also from the neighboring cities. Yeah, we need to stay always ahead of the curve and we need to work very hard. Uh, I just wanted to add a couple of points on, onto yeah, that, one, one of which is that uh, obviously Hong Kong has grown over the period we were talking about, but it has continued to grow, as you were describing, uh, even at the very high levels of income that now exist. So we're, from an economics perspective, it's very interesting to see an already very wealthy society getting very, very high levels of growth for a society of that type when you're well beyond any catch-up point you're, you're continuing. 
The other thing that I came across in researching Hong Kong is um, how important productivity is in Hong Kong yeah. and how much of the growth that occurs elsewhere is factor accumulation, the very high levels of savings. Um, a lot of people look at Singapore versus Hong Kong, for example. Uh, the level of consumption per person, which I suppose at the end of the day is what we're trying to achieve, is, is higher because the Hong Kong uh, economy has had much higher levels of productivity growth for decades. Uh, and therefore, I think that's an important thing for anyone contrasting these different uh, economies to have a look at too. Thank you. Okay. Uh, a lady in the middle. I haven't been to the middle yet, so yeah, there you go. I'm Renee Lerner from the George Washington University Law School. And I have a question that is not law related, although you uh, very nicely explained the benefits of the rule of law and the common law system. Uh, it's a question instead about the effects of free markets. As Hong Kong demonstrates, free markets have a tremendous uh, benefit in terms of economics and economic growth and material prosperity. I'm wondering if Cooperthwaite thought about the moral benefits as well. Adam Smith, of course, was deeply concerned with the moral benefits of uh, free trade. Uh, and uh, today, I think we see some of the difficulties if government gets very heavily involved uh, in the private economy with currying favor with government officials and corruption and all sorts of things like that. And I'm wondering if Cooperthwaite thought that his work had a moral dimension as well as an economic dimension. Start that. Please, yeah. please. Uh, very much so. I mean, one of the uh, things is Cooperthwaite was uh, a very thoughtful man. Uh, he, he read very widely, um, not just economics. In fact, he probably didn't read that much economics, but, uh, but, he, but he read very widely. And I think he very much saw a moral dimension uh, to many of his policies. Uh, for example, as you described, the benefits that free trade can, um, the free free trade and free markets can bring, particularly to the most uh, he what he described as the most needy in society, he was extremely conscious of the need to help people who were going through, as he called it, temporary or permanent difficulties, and therefore not sharing in the overall wealth of society, and keen to put in place uh, platforms that help that. One that struck me extremely strongly. Um, in, in research in Cooperthwaite is his concern over intergenerational fairness as well, to just take one other example. He, he had a very strong feeling that it was wrong to run up significant debts because you were basically getting the benefit for yourself but passing the cost on to your children and the children's children. Uh, and he came at that not only from a simple mathematical issue of therefore the compounding of that debt is, is, a bad, is bad news uh, versus paying it off, but from a moral perspective too, that it was just wrong to do that. So I think he, he thought very deeply about moral issues. And as you say, he was very influenced by Adam Smith, who, who had this concept of natural justice and what was right for, for people to own, and that they should benefit from their own labor. Uh, that was very strong. I remember reading one piece where some of the, some of the people are complaining about wages going up in one sector. Uh, and he's, he sort of says, yeah, but that's the whole point, isn't it? <laughs> we want the wages to go up. Um, we should be pleased that they're leaving this poorly paid sector and moving into this highly paid sector. That's the point of doing all of this. Uh, so he did, I think, have quite a strong moral 
moral view. He wasn't very, uh, he didn't try and push that. It was very much strongly there, but I think not something he wanted to major on. He tried to major on the practical economics of things. If I may share a little bit uh, my thoughts, um, the maturity of a society is by evolution. Yeah. Uh, Sir John Cooperway was financial secretary in the 60s. And at that time, Hong Kong was very poor. And as a trading port without any natural resources, uh, indeed very difficult to grow economically. So the formula then was wonderful. Fee pot, low tax regime, territorial base of taxation, no capital gains, da da da. So very competitive and attract a lot of foreign investment and foreign business setting their operations in Hong Kong and benefiting the local. Yeah. In the 70s, we set up the Independent Commission Against Corruption. And if we look back in the past 30 years, 70s, 80s, 90s, we also set up the Equal Opportunities Commission, the Office of Ombudsmans. Uh, what I mean is that we put in place different institutions to address the issues that you have raised. And in the in the earlier part of 2000, we passed a law for minimum wage. And about, also, if I remember correctly, in the 70s, we also set up legal aid, providing free legal assistance uh, to people of relatively limited means to ensure access to justice. So as the society grows and mature, one by one, this has been and will continue to be addressed. Well, thank you very much. That's a great way to uh, end on. Uh, that's all the time we have. Thank you very much for coming. Please join us for lunch upstairs. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.